hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's 80,000 years ago on the sparsely forested edge of the African savanna. You've just returned from an expedition in search of food. Your community is small, some 30 members strong, but bellies never stay full for long. Luckily, this mission was successful and you've returned with enough nutrient-rich bone marrow to provide a feast. You're relieved to be back with your people, safe from the many dangers of the expansive landscape you've traversed for hours. It's a landscape that, in your years as a scavenging party member, you've had to learn a lot about. Your ever-increasing ability to plan ahead in order to navigate your environment effectively is the reason your community has survived, after all. You return to the flint napping you left unfinished when you spotted vultures circling in the distance, cueing a new fallen carcass and the promise of food for your people. You don't even know it but the implications of the tool shaping you're doing in this moment are staggering, reflecting complex cognitive functioning that has differentiated humans like you and your little band for tens of thousands of years already. Your tool making skill is astonishing in and of itself, but what's truly mind boggling is the scale of strategic and logistical thinking that you and those around you have had to engage in to do your jobs and survive in your harsh, ever-changing environment. But as one of your party beckons you to eat, you aren't thinking about any of this. As you share another meal with your community, you have no idea that your camp is a living example of survival of the smartest. Hey there, I'm Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. For today's episode, we're going way, way back in time. How far? Try a cool million years, give or take. We're talking with Clint Janulis, whose diverse background as a US Special Forces soldier, combat medic, and paleoanthropologist gives him and now us, a unique perspective on the complex lives of early modern humans, the tools they used, the foods they ate, and most crucially, all the logistical planning required to achieve these seemingly basic goals just needed to survive. I guess you could say that for early humans, survival was all in a day's work. Let's dive in. In his previous life, Clint was an enlisted Special Forces soldier and survival instructor who served three combat tours in Iraq. After 14 years in the U.S. military, he returned to school to complete his education, initially focusing on medical research and human evolutionary studies, and then a doctoral program in archaeology at the University of Oxford. He moved back to be with his family in rural Kansas with his wife when the pandemic hit. He's currently editing his doctoral thesis for submission. He's co-director of the Center for Cognitive Archaeology at the University of Colorado, and has started a TV production company that focuses on educational media. Clint, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So today, we're going way back in time to explore hunter-gatherers and the early human cognitive revolution. Clint, can you give us a little context for our topic today? Well, um, this is a topic that is so broad, it's very difficult to just say, point at one thing and say, this is what we're talking about. But at some point, we were primates that were mostly living in trees and did not use tools. And something happened. There was a shift, something that selected for and scaffolded the spatial reasoning skills, the executive function, these 
things we use in our daily lives as humans every day in our species and people began making tools they started using them in novel ways they moved into new ecological niches literally almost a blink of an eye we went uh from not tool making to putting somebody on the moon and it's different steps in that process different changes in the environment and in the genetics that we look for to see where these different revolutions was there one single revolution or was it a series of hundreds if not thousands small subtle changes yeah it's incredibly complex and uh, you know I, I can't wait to really drill down into it um so given how big this topic is is there a certain time period or geographical area that we're going to focus on when we talk today time period we're probably going to focus from today back to about two million years ago so that's pretty broad that's just just a, like the weekend all right yeah <laughs> And, and there's a reason, uh, and this is something I discovered during my doctoral work, was that by turning the lens on more recent time periods and even getting out of hunter-gatherer subsistence and practices and looking at more contemporary societies, we can find the interesting uh, relationships that may have scaffolded human evolution and cognitive change uh, by comparing them to contemporary societies and putting them back to what we do know about people 200, 500,000 years ago or a million years ago. And so that's why I don't narrow it down to one single time frame because there's interesting points to be found for comparative analysis in all time frames going back that far. Great. Well, we can jump around. That leaves us nimble and flexible. I like it. Yes. It's a very clever academic uh, strategy. <laughs> you know what? We got to pack all those gems into our backpacks we can when we're going to big person school, don't we, Clint? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Before we dive into our topic, can we talk shop for just a second? I mean, we're, we're talking about trying to look into the minds of our earliest human ancestors who've been dead, as you say, tens, possibly hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. There's no written records. And unlike many other periods that we study as archaeologists, there's not a whole lot of material evidence to go on either. So how do you even do this kind of work? That's a really good question. And uh, one, you start with the data, <laughs> whether it be archaeological um, or you compare archaeological data from a site where we kind of know what the environment looked like and look at how more recent hunter-gatherers survived in similar environments who may have been making similar tools, hunting the same animals. And we compare those and we look for interesting um, relationships. And so that's, you know, ethnographic comparison, anthropology and archaeology all kind of coming together. And then another way, one in which I find to be, at, least, at the very least it's fun, is experimental archaeology, replicating some of the tools and techniques that we know were being used or adopted uh, by our ancestors and running them through a process in which you're having to put yourself in the shoes, cognitively speaking, or physically, if you're, <laughs> if you're making shoes. Did they wear shoes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suspect, yes. Uh, depends on where they were, though. I don't wear shoes a lot of times if I can avoid it. Um, but if it's winter, I got shoes on. Uh, experimental side gives it allows you to sort of apply a forensic lens to it and you can look for patterns of wear usage and things like that you know we can make some arrowheads that look like something we found in a paleo-indian context or spear points and, and test them against a carcass or certain types of material see how effective they are how hard are they to make but one of the interesting things that comes about from experimental archaeology is not just seeing how good a tool is and what sort of forensic signature does it leave but what are the logistics that go into producing that tool? Now that gives you an insight into the economy of yeah. that society because most people don't quite realize just how complex uh, the logistical nature of some of these artifacts from prehistory are. You know, how much planning had to go into them, how much curation, how much, uh, you know, let's just say you needed flint and it's the only source of good flint is 300 miles away. Yeah. Well, that may be going into someone else's territory, or that may be going into landscapes that you're exposed to carnivores. And I suspect you're not going to go, let's say you're in Botswana or uh, South Africa somewhere, and you're going 300 miles. It's kind of an epic trip we're talking about. It requires a lot of planning, and you need to plan your water. You need to plan who's going, your food, your, your security. Your shoes. Shoes, and um, 
you know, we're talking also a time frame when there were a lot of big, large carnivorous animals that were ambushed with predators. And you really had to strategize around those because, you know, you get into a landscape where you're looking for flint. So that probably means it's on an exposed ecosystem where there's been a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of exposed rock that's come about from you know, water, uh, water movement and things like that. Well, that may mean also you're in an area that doesn't have a lot of tree cover or foliage to mask your movement. So now you're heading into an open terrain, and most of us don't think twice about that here, but put yourself in the shoes of somebody on a landscape that's got huge felines that like to hunt and eat human-looking things. And uh, that's a whole other layer to that process of experimental archaeology and for a lot of people it stops right at making the tool but if you really think through that process and the implications of it and the planning and strategy you start seeing just how complex the lives of these hunter-gatherers were absolutely and what i'm thinking about as you're you're saying this is we're also looking at a situation where there is a sophisticated understanding of landscapes and resources well beyond their own horizon. So does this speak of communication between groups or are, you know, that, that it raises a whole nother set of questions. How do they know that there's great Flint 300 miles away? <laughs> Absolutely. That's a really good point. Communication and scale. So what's the scale of the endeavor we're looking at? What's, who are they communicating with? And yeah, how do they know there's Flint? I'm sure you would have had to have had groups within those overlapping territories uh, that knew each other and were interacting with each other. They were probably kin um, because you can't, you know, we're talking bands of hunter-gatherers, maybe of 30 to 50. You're going to have to go outside from, uh, for partners, for mating partners. So that may be another component to this as well. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated at when you're you're talking about your experimental archaeology. It it sounds like really an exercise in reverse engineering. You're you're kind of looking at an artifact and kind of imagining it in reverse how it was made. Absolutely, that's that really is what it is, and that's how the you know the first people that re sort of introduced the art of paleolithic flint napping you know some of the french experimental archaeologists at the turn of the century they had to reverse engineer they didn't have uh some of the handy artifact and flint napping books we do today because even if we're talking let's say late or early Acheulean style tools even more contemporary hunter gatherers who were you know even even today some still flint nap weren't making those styles of tools because those tools were made for a specific, uh, specific environmental context with specific animals and environment and lifestyle. And so there wasn't even, you couldn't even go maybe talk to a Native American group that still practice it and see how they were making the big, you know, Acheulean bifaces uh, in that exact manner. So they reverse engineered, you know, the skill and technique. And then I like looking at where, how that takes us a couple steps further and helps us reverse engineer an economy and a, a, a way of life in an ecosystem. Yeah, sort of the so what. So we can look at this tool, we can understand how it was made, but what's really interesting is why and, and how it affected life. Absolutely, that's, that's fast. I mean, that's the beauty of this discipline. And what we do is it always has an endless series of interesting questions that inform us about our past and often some of the best ways to answer those questions is to get out and get your hands dirty and go play in the woods, go play with rocks. Put yourself in that situation and think through what our ancestors would have had to have thought through. And that's fun. Oh, it's so fun. Uh, it's time for you to sort of drop us in to a typical day for an early human hunter-gatherer. What, you know, they wake up in the morning. How does, how does their day start? What, what's on their mind and what are they worried about? Um, let's, and before I do that, I'll just qualify it a little bit. Instead of saying maybe we've got a revolution that occurred when humans went from primarily um, living in trees, uh, large plant-based diet, to learning how to scavenge carcasses fairly effectively. And not just the meat, but also getting at bone marrow. And so that probably... That, A, I think represents a very significant new niche in human evolution that we adapted, that we moved into. 
and B, uh, that was a, that ratcheting effect started with that, I believe, creating these tools that are more and more effective at getting bone marrow out of bones. And that's the first sort of major, let's wake up as a hunter-gatherer sort of scenario you can picture. And then a million or so years after that, we're talking probably 800,000, 600,000 years ago, people become adept hunters. And that's a different game. It's different tools, different strategies. So that's the other scenario you might wake up in and say, what am I going to do today? But let's start at the first one. And why does the bone marrow matter? Because bone marrow by weight and density is about four to five times as nutritious as meat from most animals. That's one. Yeah, it's a fantastic food source. And there's one other component to bone marrow that's even more important is that it will stay good in the bone long after the meat has been uh, consumed by scavengers. So the bone, especially the distal ends of the very large uh, long bones, such as the end of a femur from a megafauna animal in a you know, savanna landscape, often those weren't touched because there were no scavengers that just had the, the jaw size and capability to get into those large bone sections. So essentially, we've got humans uh, or our ancestors coming down from living in trees, uh, more ground dwelling, probably living on the edges of the forest, closer to the savanna. And you've got these big packages of nutrient-rich material out there on the grasslands. If only you can get to them. If only you can get into them. Because if you've ever, if you take, take a large cow bone and try to break into it without a stone tool, without a tool, you're not going to do it. It's, it's really difficult. Wow. So, you know, they needed to kind of make up their own equivalent of the can opener with their stone tools to, to get into this bone. That's right. I actually call it that in the last paper I wrote on the topic. <laughs> you do? Oh, well, I will cite you for that. I, I would love to read it. <laughs> it's a good analogy. It really, it's very, um, it's intuitive, Clint. <laughs> so. That was part of the experimental work I was doing was testing the efficiency of different types of uh, large bifaces found in the early Acheulean at extracting bone marrow, at getting at it, and comparing it to some of the you know more gracile, refined hand axes and bifaces from the late Acheulean, and seeing you know how do you get that big packet of nutrition out of that real hard thing that's sitting on the landscape just waiting for you. It's an unexploited resource, and we figured out how to exploit it. And I don't think it can be overstated just how important those big old packages of fatty, nutritious food sitting out on the landscape were to our evolutionary trajectory. I think, I think that may have been one of the key things that started driving us to modify and make tools that could quickly get into those bones, get that food so you can grab as much as you can or eat as much as you can and get back to safety. And I say safety because if you put yourself in the shoes of this hunter-gatherer group living on the edge of a woodland, looking out over a big prairie or savanna, you're safe. You're in the trees. You can get up high. You cannot be ambushed there and nothing can chase you down. The places where you're going to find these uh, big packages of food that need cracked open with a can opener, are probably going to be out on the prairie, on the savanna, because that's where those animals get ambushed and ran down by pack hunting predators. And they just leave what they're not going to eat behind. Yes. And then the scavengers come in and the hyenids and the vultures and those sorts of things. And they'll usually- And the humans. <laughs> and the early humans. The humans. Yeah. And, and you're looking around the edges of your forest and you see a bunch of vultures flying overhead uh, a couple miles out under the savanna. And you're like, wow, I know what that means. And if you hadn't seen those vultures yesterday, you can reasonably be, make the assumption that that animal was killed that day. Well, you're probably going to wait a bit. Let the lions have their fill. You don't want to play with them because you may have some full lions, but you also may have some betas on the edge of the pack that haven't eaten. And they're getting pushed away from the kill. And then there's a big pink thing that comes up on two legs, and that might be a more attractive option. So you might wait, and then you get the hyenas coming in. Now, those things, hyenas are really, can be pretty nasty pieces of work if, if you had to go up against one. And that means there's not going to be a whole lot of meat left on sure. that bone, yeah. on those bones. 
but that might be the time you go. So it may be a few days, you may decide to wait or you take that opportunity and go prepare your tools, which may mean, well, we got to go to the place where you get the stone and you load everybody up and hopefully that's a place that's not too dangerous to get to. And you go there and you make the tools you think you'll need and you let your kids practice making their own. And then you go back to the woodlands and when you think it's time, you take the risky decision to head out into dangerous territory that is the open grasslands. And if you've prepared your hand axes and cleavers and choppers, you've got sharp, hard things in your hands too. So if something does come at you, you can put up a unified front and hit them in the head with something. Yeah, sure. Those, those are weapons as, as well as extraction tools. Yes. And when you're dealing with ambush predators, if something's ambushing you, you've got a second if even that, a second or two to make a decision that may save your life. And that's hit whatever it is coming at you as hard as you can with the thing in your hand at close proximity. And you need that mechanical action, that force of impact that comes with turning your arm and hand into an ax. The goal of this operation, mission, whatever it is, is to get as much marrow as you can, as quickly as you can before other animals figure out you're there. Because they'll probably start smelling the marrow as soon as you crack it open, because that's that smell is going to waft across the landscape, and you may be facing other animals that want that when they smell it. So you're going to go in quick, fast, grab as much as you can. Maybe this group has started making simple containers using old animal hides, uh, willow baskets, that sort of thing, and they're throwing as much of that marrow as they can into these containers, and then they're heading back to the safety of the woodland, and when they get back there. That's where the kids are, maybe the nursing mothers, uh, grandmothers, if there's, you know, those sorts of things. And everybody shares in the feast. And so for the kids, for everybody relating to this operation, you know, the, the, the sounds of flint napping, the sounds of adults, uh, you know, maybe whatever form of communication they may be using, uh, relating what they should do. Those are all the sounds of like your grandmother preparing Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, over the holidays, you know, her, you're getting the roasting pan out and your mouth starts watering and, and you, you know, it's the same thing. You hear the flint being napped, you know, there's food on the horizon. Your parents are doing it with you, showing you, and you're, they're going to have all these good feelings come about, hopefully good. Um, these tools represent food and safety and family. And so that's going to directly scaffold an effective process. A relationship with making these tools, as well as an enskillment that's going to come about by watching and observing and doing. And then you get the, the selective benefit that comes about from finding something that meets your, your basic needs, food. It's really compelling the way you explain that, Clint. And I mean, well, the first thing that, that I, I want to actually ask you is, do you think at this particular time that you've been telling us about that this kind of person really was anything other than a gatherer? Well, I suspect, I've said that a lot, the word I suspect, because I, I, can't, I can't make definitive statements and I'm hesitant to do so because I have some colleagues who will throw stones at me metaphorically or even physically if I make big statements of fact. But I think that we started as primarily gatherers. You could apply hunter to anything that kills another organism in a sense, but I would say gatherers, gatherers and scavengers. That seems the most likely scenario because hunting is such a complex task if you're going after large animals, using simple hunting methods such as throwing sticks, uh, rocks, that sort of thing. But I wouldn't apply that as a label hunter because it probably didn't contribute a large amount to their food economy the bone marrow system if you get efficient at exploiting it regularly that makes the marrow scavenging a much bigger part of your economy that's your income that's where the bulk of the calorie income is coming from so what else were they gathering at this time we've got this marrow which clearly was really important and arguably most important but did the availability of this marrow cause early humans, in your opinion, to kind of abandon gathering plant materials as well? I, I don't think so. I, you had, in this, these landscapes, you would have had seasonally available uh, large abundances of certain types of plant materials, underground tubers, you know, roots, uh, and then you get certain types of trees that produce nuts that are highly fatty, nutritious. And so I'm sure they would 
take advantage of those resources as they came about and the, the marrow. Well, it sounds like it. And, and yes, I know this is one of those big and very cantankerous debates that swings back and forth. It has been going on for, let's face it, uh, many decades in archaeology. But, you know, you, you've got some big guns, oh, no pun intended on your side. I mean, good old Lou Binford, right? What, in, in back in the 80s and his whole um, ideas about this very much are in line with what you've been describing, that, you know, humans at this point or our predecessors were, you know, just incapable of doing anything other than scavenging what was left behind by other animals that frankly would prey on them as well if they got the chance. And we know that from um, archaeological remains, skulls with saber-toothed tiger tooth marks and such. Uh, May have started maybe as a supplement, and but then that through that ratcheting process became more and more significant to the point where maybe you were seeing a 50-50 split. I don't have any data to or to qualify those numbers, but it seems the most logical uh, pathway for our trajectory. And I also would address the point, I don't, wouldn't make a claim that we weren't capable of hunting as much as even if we were, it just may not have made all that much sense in those contexts, in the ecosystem they were in, the amount of risk and danger involved with hunting certain types of prey species. I think we started learning how to scale up and down as needed. And that built in a lot of resiliency into our ability to adapt to environmental changes, major environmental changes. That, that is another critical factor in the human evolutionary process, I believe that resiliency, the ability to hunt when we need to as a, a culture, and the ability to rely more on plant resources as we need to based on the environment. Makes perfect sense. And so you mentioned the risks of trying to hunt these large prey. Could you speculate a little bit more about that for us and what that would have been like? Just thinking again about this concept of being in the shoes of one of these people. You know, if you're going after anything larger than a, you know, say a small deer or something, um, the earliest weapons we have, hunting tools we have examples of, we're probably not super effective at dispatching the animal immediately. So you've got the wounded, injured animal. And if you're going after this anim these animals and you're on an African savanna landscape, you're having to put yourself in the same positions and locations that some of the other large predatory animals are as well. So you may be hunter become hunted sort of situation, but you, you injure or wound this large animal, whatever it is, and then you have to dispatch it uh, and they are going to flail about. Some animals will turn and attack their attackers. Um, you know, you go after water buffalo or something of that nature, you better have a tree nearby that you can get up if you make it angry. <laughs> Back to the trees. <laughs> it worked for a while. Right? Um, so all these factors are important to consider. And then the other one is that there's a huge time investment. It's like starting a, a business or a business endeavor where you're going to go into debt at the beginning. You have to go into caloric debt to do or conduct a hunt and hunts are using the simple spears and tools of that time period would have been best done as a maybe small group ambush style hunt and then you track and you do maybe some persistence hunting sort of injuring it or following an animal for many many hours even days until you wear it down to exhaustion and that is a really complex process and when you look at how they're doing it What's happening is you, you imagine a diamond, you know, an outline of a diamond made of roughly humans moving in a diamond shape and the lead person is tracking the animal. And you may be running, you know, at a, maybe not at a 50% pace, 60%. You know, that lead person has to be the closest one to the animal. They're trying mm. to keep that spore, that's the, uh, the sign of the animal fresh. And they're watching for any turn from their footprints or their sign of you know twigs being broken, that sort of thing. So A, they have to be the fastest at that moment. And they also have to be the most cognitively attuned 
And then everybody else in the diamond or maybe arrow shaped is spread out behind them. And if that lead tracker misses the animal, then one of those people on the sides might pick up the trail and they would say, ah, oh, we got it here. And then the whole organization, the whole formation will turn and follow where the animal turned. And then that lead tracker might only be able to do that for an hour and they're gonna be smoked. So they're gonna push out of lead tracking and go to the back of the formation. The next person up will take the lead role. And okay, you're doing that. Maybe you might end up tracking for three or four days in that manner. Well, if you've got 10 people on the hunt and every one of them has burnt 4,000 calories or kilocalories for the day or 5,000, um, A, running and B, trying to stay cool and you got to get water. Well, and thinking, right? Doesn't thinking burn calories too? This is highly complex cognitive process. I mean, 25 to 30% of your calorie consumption goes to cognitive processes and, you know, feeding the machine, feeding the brain. And so you add that into the physical exertion of doing a persistence hunt. And so 10 people on a hunt, 50,000 calories a day, you know, it's like a business owner, you know, starting an operation, oh, that's $50,000 a day to do this. And so let's take that three days. You're in a, as a group in a calorie deficit and you still haven't gotten an animal. Maybe you kill it on that third day, but maybe you don't, maybe you don't ever get it. And you got, well, let's go home, start over next week. Okay. But everybody's 150,000 calories down. <laughs> so think of that. And you're also very vulnerable too. If there was a rival group at that point that didn't like you or animals that had been tracking you. So there's a whole number of things that come about with hunting that are more than just getting too close to the animal and having it stab you with its horns or antlers uh, or run you down to the ground. Add in all those other factors and you can see why hunting may not always be the best income solution for certain environments. Oh, absolutely. It, it's just too, too much of a, of a the cost benefit analysis. It just doesn't, it doesn't stack up. Absolutely. And I know I use a lot of business economic uh, concepts, but it, I think it makes it relatable to what I'm talking about to people who aren't as versed on hunter-gatherer, uh, optimal foraging theory, that sort of stuff. And I know some anthropologists who would cringe hearing me use all these economic terms, but it really is the best way I can think of to relate it in lay terms. So it sounds like there are some really surprising complexities about the lives of these early humans, uh, hunting, gathering aside just the general social organizational structure is perhaps to a modern person's ears surprisingly complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's what I love about some of the experimental thought exercises and also physical exercises I've engaged in by going out and doing these things. Uh, I am just constantly surprised at how complex some of these activities are beyond just what some might view as simple survival skills. They're way more than that. They're planning and logistics and strategy skills that, you know, there's some people, a lot of people alive today aren't very good at those things. I'm really curious, do you see a direct connection between increased access to this nutrient-rich marrow and the evolution of human thought processes that we call the cognitive revolution? I'll address one aspect to this and that the, you know, the cognitive revolution was initially, there's also several meanings to that term too. It also refers to a revolution in psychology, but uh, in the discipline itself and <laughs> the philosophy underpinning it. But uh, for our purposes as archaeologists, it was initially referring to what was viewed at the time as a very interesting set of changes in human behavior when humans moved into Europe and the upper Paleolithic. And we started finding things like uh, cave art such as Lascaux and Chauvet and the uh, all this was viewed as the all right we found what when humans were human it was in Europe and 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 is this sort of a, a preconceived notion that that's fundamentally based on the emergence of symbolic thinking and the production of art absolutely and that that was a uh, uh, I guess in the mid two thousands that the notion of Demonstration of symbolism uh, and using symbolism to communicate or to spread ideas was what seemed to be a, almost every paper in that subdiscipline uh, was trying to demonstrate. The problem is that it is kind of a no-go for our actual understanding of what it means to be human because we have groups 
even today, such as the uh, Paraha in South America, who don't engage in anything that we would look at later as archaeologists and say, ah, that's symbolic, you know, and what, are they not human? Are they not cognitively modern? No, it's just that they, of course they are. They just don't need it. In these smaller group sizes they live in, they don't have the need for cooperative endeavors like big hunts, uh, big cooperative hunts, or vast journeys to find mating partners. They just follow the river systems. It's a totally different lifestyle. They have different needs. It does not mean that they are not cognitively modern because they don't engage in a lot of symbolic behavior. Humans were not in Europe until about 42,000 years ago. There were Neanderthals there, but not humans. So it's not a matter of they weren't good or whatever. They were just stuck in the Middle East and Northern Africa. That's where they were living. They weren't in Europe. There was a very Eurocentric, uh, old, <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, my dear boy, uh, let me tell you. Anyway, the uh, old academic sort of notion, and it, it was, you know, the archaeology in their backyard was easier to wrap your head around than that place that's real far away. Yeah, easier to wrap your head around, and it certainly um, bolsters national and cultural pride. Which you kind of might understand why some of that happened in the post-World War II era. Uh, the French were, are, are and Spanish are very proud of their archaeological history, and they should be. They got fantastic archaeology. <laughs> um, and after World War II, you know, all the European countries, yeah, archaeology became a bit political. And I don't mean it isn't today. Obviously, it's very political today. But that was the politicization, politicization of archaeology as a sort of bringing the national unity back together for a fractured Europe. Um, oh, yeah. Well, and we could talk about that all day long if we dared go down that route. We've been talking to you with your archaeologist hat on for some time now, and you have also deep experience and expertise in survival as a former, former military and an instructor on these topics. And I am just fascinated at this recent trend that we've seen. I mean, and it's not just a fad, it's really endemic these days this movement back to to basics of the most extreme kind of survival you know out in the woods and hunting and gathering and making your own clothes and this is not some kind of hippie thing where you leave it all behind it it costs a lot of money to to sort of <laughs> espouse this lifestyle um and have this experience i would love your take on why survival has become such an appealing lifestyle trend. Uh, it is a very interesting phenomenon. And it, you know, it's, it's kind of old at this point in terms of, as a modern trend, you, you know, the first Bear Grylls show came out, what, mid, early 2000s, mid 2000s. And so now the, the survival industry has, is not just a passing fad, it's 15 years old. Yeah, it's no fad, it's here to stay. You know, there was a time period in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, where there was a bunch of focus and attention on this sort of back to nature sort of movement. And in fact, where I'm at in rural Kansas, which also has a really rich history as the one of the furthest Western points on the Underground Railroad before the Civil War. Oh, yeah. It's there. There are chambers everywhere made out of limestone covered in prairie sod that were used to hide escaped slaves who were coming over from Missouri. Uh, but also in the 70s, a bunch of hippies came here and in two spots, just uh, 10 miles from here. One of them, their bus, hippie bus, literally broke down on a prairie hilltop and the farmer said they could stay there and if they worked the ground well enough, they could buy some acreage on them. They did, they became farmers and that bus is still on the hilltop right where it broke. Just like the old wagon wheels, like right where your wagon broke, but it's a hippie bus. So we got a bunch of old hippies here, but they came out during that movement back to the land, Mother Earth News. They were uh, Yule Gibbon. They were people were learning how to forage again. And, and that was less survival-y than more back to the land. That was never, to me, kind of mainstream the way what we see everywhere today about survival. Well, see, that for me is the opposite experience because my parents settled this area for the, that reason. And they pulled up stakes and settled down and they're like, we're going to be farmers. And they got their copies of Mother Earth News and they got an old earth stove and they bought an old farm and started setting it up. And that's where they are now. That's where I'm 10 miles from there right now. And 
that was mainstream because a lot of their friends and a lot of people I grew up with were way into that. It seemed to fade later. Um, and then you had the resurgence in the mid 2000s. And I think that mid 2000s resurgence was partially a large scale social anxiety. And then you had a military culture emerging. And then uh, there's not just one, there's a bunch of subcultures, but a lot of people coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. And also the number of troops that had gone into the combat arms and had gone to survival school had increased dramatically. And the guy who teaches the special forces survival instructors, the SEER, what the school is called SEER, S-E-R-E, Search, Evasion, Resistance, Escape is the acronym. And the guy who teaches the print, what they call the primitive skills instructors, lives 40 minutes from me just up the road, he's the guy I went to. I got deployed to my own county <laughs> to go attend training with this guy, and he was one of those people as well. So there's this deep overlap there, and then I was sent there to be an instructor, and when I was went back to college, I started a business with a few other spec ops guys, and we taught survival as a corporate team-building thing and also as just a separate skill in itself, and field trauma medicine. And we had so many people coming from the suburbs. They'd never even, you know, they'd never gone fishing. They'd never done anything, but they had money and they wanted to learn this stuff. And it was an interesting phenomenon watching this. This is 2011, 12, 13. Um, and we even got, we turned them down, obviously, but we had prepper groups that were affiliated with uh, white nationalism. Like, Several occasions they wanted training. They thought we would teach them. I don't know why, but it was it was uncomfortable. And I wasn't unhappy to leave that as a business when I left to go do my PhD at Oxford. I was I didn't want to be in that world. It was a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, it sounds like it's become highly politicized. Yes, it has. And there's different different subcultures within it. And I had a very unique experience when I went to England and I became a survival consultant survival and archaeology consultant for television shows, which ultimately led to me being a host of a reality survival show in England for two seasons. And I realized the English have their own separate and distinct subcultures relating to survival. And I broke it down uh, a few years back when I was talking to a friend. I said, well, you've kind of got the militant side and they're not nearly as politicized, I would say, as the U.S. survival cultures are. But the militant side tends to be just people who were in the military and they're a bit more sort of dress right dress and they approach things, you know, and they use knife hands. We call them when you point your hand at somebody in a chopping action. Um, but <laughs> they don't seem to get bought up into the prepper politics, that sort of stuff. And then you got the more hippie bushcrafter side where it's like, hey, man, how you doing? I'm gonna make some bowls today out of wood. And here I'm back in the U.S. and I'm relearning the American subcultures and it definitely seems more politicized now than it was when I left. Yeah, I was wondering if, if you could sort of draw a comparison between when you left that business, it, it sounds like the mid-20-teens, to when you've come back in 2020 in the midst of this global pandemic. There's a couple of notions to this. And one, I think, is in an apolitical sense, or marginally political, I think people just like the idea of self-reliance, the ability to be self-reliant during a time of uncertainty and instability. Sure, we're certainly in that now. Yes, and there's a comfort there. Um, then the other thing is, I think people, it's sort of a thing you can flaunt. Uh, it sort of goes along with the gun culture that emerged uh, in the late 2000s, where basically everybody had an, have an AR-15. And it was more or less not an actual tool that would get used for home defense as just a, more of a political statement. You know, what is survival right now? If I were, if I, if you had two days and you're like, Clint, teach me some stuff, survival stuff, I'd say, where are we going to focus? Are we going to teach you bow drill fire or how to rub two sticks, make things hot? No, no, there's lighters everywhere. You don't need that. <laughs> I mean, that's if you get stranded on a desert island, maybe that's useful. But knowing how to process a cow that you can't get into the butcher shop because they're all overwhelmed and the price of beef is, you know, uh, they can't get the employees in to manage the animal processing center. So the animals 
are becoming more expensive to feed than they are worth for a lot of farmers at the moment, a lot of farmers and ranchers. So a survival skill would be, I think, saying, let's butcher a cow ourselves. We're going to use modern knives. We don't need to use flint stone because that's not the most efficient answer right now. And we're going to make that meat into jerky. And I'm going to show you how to render the fat and the bone marrow down to tallow. So you're separating the organics from the lipids. And you're going to take that tallow and you're going to mix it with that beef jerky you made. And we're going to make season it and wrap it. And you've just made pemmican blocks that don't need refrigerated and they are good for decades. Now you just took a cow and turned it into something that doesn't have to go in a refrigerator and is a package of very nutritionally dense and rich food that can be used at any time. It could be stored out back behind your house. Even if the power goes out, you've got thousands and thousands of nutritious calories waiting for you. And you can do this in your average apartment in New York City. You can Maybe not the butchering. Let's do that out in the street. And that's a Stone Age skill. And it's also a survival skill. But it's one that can be done in your average kitchen. Now, that's a survival skill. That's a survival skill for now because with the inability to butcher and process beef, we're going to see knock-on side effects that are like a slinky coming back and forth six months from now. We don't know what's going to happen. And beef may go through the roof or it may drop to nothing. But you have the ability to take excess beef when it comes, when it's in a surplus in your environment, when it's cheap, like right now, and turn it into something that you can feed your family six months from now. Now, that is a survival skill that comes from the Stone Age, but is applicable today. That's what I would teach you. Yeah. And, you know, it's survival that equates to independence and, and freedom. It's sort of like the ultimate patriotic concept, you know, when you think about frontier living. It really takes us straight back to the situation of that hunting, gathering troop of early humans who had to invest the same kind of energy in the processes and the logistics required to just survive on those savannas. Absolutely. And logistics is life. That's, that's most animals, most other animals don't think about logistics. Now, that's one of those things that really scaffolded humans as human is that we are strategists. We think analytically about a lot of different things and how best to organize our efforts, our energies, our social interactions to best exploit those things to meet our needs. Other animals really don't do that. We do it through thought and through culture and through education. And that's that hunting, that scavenging bone marrow process. That first thing we talked about is so complex from a what they call executive function, the ability to think like an executive of a company, but for your body, for your mind, for your family, uh, was, I think, and that working memory, keeping multiple things in, in mind at once, you know, address multiple challenges at once. The, I think those things were scaffolded by that first process of having to do something unique with tools you made to go find a resource that meets your needs. And that just kept building till we got to hunting practices and then eventually cooperative hunting, which became very necessary to survive the ice age of the Northern Hemisphere for those societies who not only were living on tundra and steppe in a dang ice age 30,000 years ago, they were witnessing the death of the woolly mammoth and the woolly rhino, these big animals that their ancestors had previously relied on dying off. The only animals left were reindeer, caribou, and bison. And the problem is those animals just move and eat and mate and poop and move and do it all over again. And they move so quickly, eating grass in numbers, that hundreds of thousands, that you would starve to death trying to keep up with them with your tribe, with your band. So what you, if, you, if you miss them when they're coming across your grassland landscape, you miss that herd on their annual migration or biannual, well, you don't have food for winter and you die. So somehow they learned to organize their efforts and energies and cognitive uh, processes in such a way that they could reliably exploit these big migratory, what's called gregarious herds of animals, hunt a bunch of them at once cooperatively, maybe come together four or five different bands, intercept them, kill a hundred of them, spend a whole week butchering them into everything useful, make a giant pemmican block, and then you can survive glacial winter in Europe 
30,000 years ago. But if you had messed it up, if you didn't do it right, 200, 300 people came together from hundreds of miles for this hunt. You're talking millions and millions of calories in deficit and you don't get the animals. And that's the last herd of the year. Well, it's going to be a long winter. So um, that's a Stone Age survival skill that they just kept building on and this ability to organize their efforts. That's just fascinating. It's absolutely mind-blowing when you think of how complex uh, a cooperative bison hunt of two to 300 people was and how much risk was involved and how much strategy had to be in play to make that something that you would survive doing year after year after year. Clint, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredibly stimulating discussion, and I, I, I think it's just proof that there is always some connection in the modern day with anything we're examining in terms of human behavior in the past, work or otherwise. Um, and, you know, survival probably cuts to the core of all of it more than more than most topics, but you know, even going millions of years into the past. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure to have this chat. Humans aren't the only species that use tools, nor are we the only species to have developed methods of communication that enable us to work collaboratively with others to achieve our goals. But humans have refined reasoning and logistical skills to dizzying heights. Our basic tools have evolved into complex supply and demand chains that define our modern species. But with more and more of these processes left to artificial intelligence and algorithms, are we relinquishing control of the tools that we originally created to empower ourselves? In the digital age, we may have an app for everything, but what we do with our tools is, at the end of the day, the key driver of our successes and the key differentiator of our species. Survival is big business today. It seems to beg a really big question. Does our increasing reliance on automated tools and technologies leave us, ironically, more vulnerable than ever before in the long millennia of human existence? Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe. Follow today's guest on Instagram at Janulus.Clint and on Twitter at Clint Janulus.